The impact of our national health crisis has forced significant change to many parts of the healthcare industry. Perhaps most profoundly is the dramatic change to the lives of doctors and nurses. Not only are they dedicating countless hours on the front line in our defense against the coronavirus, they're also facing disruption to the way they traditionally administer care. From embracing new ways to utilize virtual consults with their patients, to facing the realities of the economic fallout and the impact it will have on the health of their practice, the role of the provider is undergoing radical change. It causes one to ask, are the physicians today well-suited to navigate through the current crisis and evolve their role as a healthcare provider in the future? Welcome to The New Normal, conversations about the future of healthcare from Touchpoint Media. Through interviews with leading industry experts, this program explores how the current public health crisis is forcing our industry to transform and change. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Brian Vardabidian, a pediatrician at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital, whose work covers the intersection of medicine, technology, and culture. Considered one of healthcare's most influential voices and writers, he thinks about how technology is changing the way we care for and engage with patients. Dr. Vardabidian is most comfortable synthesizing ideas from seemingly unrelated verticals and communicating them in an accessible way. In this episode, Brian and I discuss the potential future of the provider in a post-COVID-19 world. Brian, you've been talking a lot about the, the public physician and how that actually should be the new way physicians are representing themselves, even before the coronavirus times. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that's important? I think this discussion about public physician is, is timely because coronavirus has kind of exposed the importance of uh, docs being out there. But when I talk about public physician, what I'm really referring to is everything we do outside of the in real life space. And it used to be that all a doctor had to think about was the stuff she could see and touch. But now there's this expanding virtual space has begun to shape a brand new role for the physician. That's a public role that's defined by everything we do beyond the UV glare of the clinic. And so public physicians, they see public presence, i.e. conversations on Twitter, et cetera, as part of their work. They see themselves as what I call outward facing. They, they see global networks as part of their world. And they also recognize the benefits of being public outweigh the risks. And the reason it's important now is because coronavirus has obviously created this massive conversation, a lot of misinformation, and we play a key role in helping to moderate that conversation. Absolutely. I think that consumers still to this day, even even the studies I have seen, the trust that they engender upon their provider, their direct provider, and not just the, the health system, but their actual individual physician that they see is strong as ever, probably by the fact that we're just inundated with a lot of information online that potentially could be incorrect or misinformation, so to speak. And that is an interesting point about trust, uh, Chris, because I think it was Susanna Fox back with one of her original Pew studies showed that despite the rise of the, the crowd and the virtual space that we thought was going to sort of supplant the physician, in fact, physicians remain the most trusted sources of information for patients. I guess I said to help navigate some of this conversation that's happening out there and this information that's flowing, people are still dependent upon docs for that for that stuff. Outside of like kind of helping to navigate and share the right information and to discredit some of the misinformation that might be out there, 
the actual role of the provider is changing significantly. First of all, there's this now virtual space, not just social media and, and being part of the conversation. There's now a rapid adoption of telemedicine, remote patient monitoring tools, and all of that. How do you see that impacting the role of the physician? Great question. And let me add that when I talk about public physician and virtual space, I'm really referring to social dialogue and social networks and public networks, not private conversations via telehealth. But you're absolutely right. We've seen this breakneck acceleration into the telehealth space. And what's so interesting about this, Chris, is this really isn't that new. We've been doing telemedicine for a while, but we've failed to see the mainstream adoption because of a variety of hangups or barriers to entry. And so with the crisis of social separation, it's forced systems who were kind of planning this, kind of like our system, to sort of overnight decide how can we pull down those barriers and do it. And so it's it's been a challenge for us, quite honestly, because it's a completely different kind of encounter. I think one of the things that I've seen is everyone says, oh, we're just going to do the same thing over video. But in fact, there are a lot of very, very subtle things that are, are different about a video encounter that make it very challenging. And I think that's being understated on the social conversations and the public dialogue. It isn't just transferring the care to just a video application. And I get that remote patient monitoring, there's going to be in-home devices that are going to be there. So you can take the remote access to their temperatures, maybe their weight, and a variety of other factors that you're looking at. But quite frankly, now we're, we're basically creating a digital doctor, so to speak, but that's tied to the, the normal physician. And you mentioned that there's been a lot of inhibitors, and I know some of them are legislative and some of them are like, you know, licensure issues, et cetera. But in my experience, whenever you try to introduce sort of like a new technology for care delivery, a lot of times it's a cultural thing that physicians themselves are not sure exactly how to express themselves through these through these new channels. For folks like me who are mid-career, who have spent all of our lives delivering care in an analog way, it's very jarring. And I think we're underestimating how challenging this is. On 33 charts, you can look up in the month of April, I wrote about the fatigue that docs are experiencing. I saw this with my team. My team came to me and said, after eight hours of doing televisits, I'm absolutely exhausted. And I started hearing this over and over again on Twitter. And I think what happens is it's a huge transition going to a virtual interaction. Secondly, we're also trying to make this connection with people. We're looking for visible cues, things that we would do in the in real life space that are very hard to elicit via a screen. And so when the honeymoon's over, I think we're going to see that this is its a challenging new role for us as docs. This is not a new thing to ask physicians to kind of extend the way they traditionally have delivered care and, and done care in the past. We've been talking a lot over the years around social determinants of health and for the physician's role should be more involved in the actual person's other aspects of their lives, you know, getting to know their exercise habits or routines, their eating habits, et cetera. Is this like another burden to put onto the physician's shoulder? I think it's really just a different context of care. Docs are really hard to change. We are used to one context of care delivery, and that is in a square room with a patient on a piece of butcher paper under a UV light. You know, this move is an amazing move because it really is meeting patients where they're at. We're giving access to care to people who in West Texas who couldn't get to Houston to see me. It does indirectly address some of these social determinants of health. Yeah, there is access to virtual internet for, for, for some individuals, but telemedicine does on a certain level level the playing field for some of these uh, challenges that we that we face in uh, in medicine. 
Do you see this leading to also other alternative care delivery models, you know, outside of just that physician visit within the clinic office? Yeah, I I think so. I think what we're forgetting now with this explosion of telehealth is the fact that the truth is that there are some patients that we have to see in person. And if you listen to the conversation and the narrative currently, everything we've suddenly overnight decided that the physical examination is really not that important. But in pediatrics, for example, assessment of a 10-month-old with fever has to be done in person. There's no way around it. You got to wrestle that kid down, look in their ears, you got to rule out UTI and all those sorts of things. So while we're seeing the rise of these virtual practices, docs are starting these uh, national telehealth things. But the reality is I think the real success is going to come from those systems who can deliver the brick and mortar in addition to a virtual option. I think what it is going to evolve right now, we're using really bare bones virtual experiences that quite honestly are not real good. I think we're going to see a, a second wave where the virtual experience is going to become the new patient satisfier as opposed to just having virtual. Right now, we're going on video. Oh, look, it's novel and new. I can see the doctor's face. You don't have to come into the office. And I think that there's going to be a second wave where the quality of the software, the quality of the interface, the ease of access onto that platform, subtle things are going to start to become far more important once we get over this novelty of just seeing a doctor virtually, which is brand new to us. When the honeymoon's over, there's going to be a virtual competition among systems. I could definitely see that. And, you know, with the rise of these connected devices in home itself, right? I have a Fitbit, I have an iPhone that can measure my EKG. And, you know, there's a variety of different things, an Apple Watch, et cetera. There's a variety of these devices now that if, if patched together in more of a seamless way, I think could really make that virtual visit or whatever, that remote visit, whatever we want to call it for the future, make that more robust. You bring up a, a great point, Chris, which is, and it follows on this idea that we have kind of given up on the physical examination almost overnight. But I think that's going to be replaced if we fast forward 10, 20 years with the rise of individual point of care devices, apps, sensors that will allow us to have a picture of what's happening with that patient in real time. You can almost imagine patients using ultrasound transducers in certain circumstances to give me a picture of what's happening just below their skin or whatever. I mean, it sounds far-fetched, but it really isn't that far-fetched. But I think that's going to be a wave that's uh, half a generation out, but I think that's the way things are going to evolve. You know, I want to pivot just slightly too away from technology. I also am hearing a lot of conversations or reading a lot of conversations online around different ways of actually delivering care now. There are EMTs now that are starting to be equipped with in-home care delivery. Even the conversation around long-term care facilities and nursing homes, how these now are going to become other centers where care is delivered. Do you see care kind of like again, reaching out of the clinic, not only into a virtual space, but to other physical locations as well? Yeah. And I think to extend that, I think care is going to be delivered more directly by people who are not physicians. And we've already seen that happen with the rise of what we call advanced practitioners, physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And the forces that have driven that, Chris, are the fact that um, so much of what we used to do with our eyes and our ears and our hands has been replaced by diagnostic technology like imaging. You come into an emergency room, 
Uh, in the old days, a doc would use criteria by exam to determine appendicitis and take you to the OR. Now we stick you in a tube and you get a CAT scan. And an advanced practitioner can see that and refer you to the next center for a appendectomy. Technology is sort of allowing the extension of care to people who aren't who don't have medical degrees. Um, another great example is genetic counseling. Okay, docs just simply aren't prepared to counsel people on their 23andMe genome that they get. They're just not currently trained in that. And I think we're going to see the rise of a subset of high-octane genetic counselors that work with patients to help contextualize some of the information that they're getting. It's almost like the definition of provider is is evolving and, and growing much larger, right? Right, right, right. And you know, the the impulse and the, the visceral response by physicians is to be very defensive and say, we're not being replaced. And I would I would suggest to them, no, we're not being replaced, but we are being radically redefined. What's so important, and I try to get this across to my colleagues, is the fact that we have to play an active role in that redefinition. We can't sit back and and just try to pull medicine back to the 20th century. We have to decide how we're going to play that role with genetic counseling. Do we need to reshape the curriculum in medical school? Do we need to reshape it for virtual medicine? Do we you know, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of saying, wait a minute, we want to go back to our role model of pay, you know, fee for service and a UV light and that sort of thing. It's a tough deal because uh, we are in probably one of the most periods of radical change in the past 300 years in medicine. And a lot of docs just don't realize it and they're, they're fighting it. The coronavirus epidemic has really caused a lot of changes to our industry. And while we were talking about, you know, this evolution of where care is delivered and technology, et cetera, the reality of the situation, though, is that we're also going to be living in a world where there's going to be some economic downturns. And very clearly, there's going to be an impact on the, the physician, maybe the individual physician practice. You can start with the hospitals. One of the biggest concerns I have, if we go out to central Texas and look at the uh, small towns with these small hospitals that are almost going bankrupt overnight. They're sort of the first to fall in this post-corona change. Um, you're talking about physician practices, and it, it begs the question whether the 20th century model of the doc in an office is going to be sustainable. And I'm not sure, Chris, that it is. And my concern with policies that kind of prop up these dated models is that they, they're propping up dated models, and they're not forcing us to innovate and find new ways of doing things. Yeah, and I know that the AMA created a wish list of relief for physician practices, and it does seem like they're kind of entrenching into what the old state is, rather than embracing like what what potential it could be, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a balance, of course. I mean, as I suggested, with telehealth, we still need to examine that 10-month-old with fever. I mean, it's just all there is to it. These practices are going to have to adapt, even if we move into telehealth do we really need as much office space? Do we need as many medical assistants and nurses and, and front-end supportive people? It's hard to predict really how things are going to be five years from now. And we have to be very nimble and very, very, very fluid with the way we, we do things. It reminds me a little bit about where there's a number of other conversations in non-healthcare where now that a, a large majority of the U.S. population is working from home, I mean, those that are blessed to be able to have jobs to do that, when we return after being shelter in place, is there going to be a need for everybody to show up into the office or is virtual working from home going to be there? It's, it's almost like an equivalency that's happening to the physician practice. Yeah, I think this, this whole change is going to be a lot bigger than... I even believe at this moment, I, I think 
this is going to change uh, month by month, and it's going to lay bare the problems with our system. Uh, we're already seeing this over and over with surgical centers and emergency rooms that the things that used to drive the margins in hospitals have effectively disappeared overnight. The walking well, you know, kids with abdominal pain that aren't that isn't that bad, but they demand to be seen because they have insurance, that sort of thing. And we're seeing those patients just disappear. And it's going to force some serious changes with these large healthcare systems that have been dependent upon fee-for-service care. And I'm not sure where that's going to land. I think some of it's going to come back. The hospitals right now are like chomping to the bit to sort of bring it back, but I'm not sure if all the patients are going to come back into this situation. That is also a concern. You know, the, the consumer mindset certainly has shifted too. And I think probably in, in two ways. One, probably a more fo- focused importance around vaccinations and, and their role in public health. But on the, on the flip side, it's sort of an aversion of going to the physician practice. I mean, after all, we've been teaching them for the last couple of weeks, look, go virtual, right. go telemedicine, don't right. come in. Right. We don't, right. Right. We, we're, not, we're not ready for the influx, right? I'll tell you what, I've been on call the past three, four weeks uh, here and there. And the funniest thing is parents will call. And traditionally, I have to bend over backwards for them not to take their kids to the ECM. Say, you know, I'll say, listen, if we can handle this. Let's do this. I'll see you in the office tomorrow. But they want to show up in the ER. What's happening now is people are like, the kid's got a problem, needs to be seen. And the family's like, I'm not coming to the ER. So it's like the exact opposite problem. And that's why our you know, ECs are, are, are empty right now. I think it's going to come back to a, a new set point, a new place. But I, I don't know that it's ever going to be exactly the way it was before. Yeah, that's certainly, there's so many different impacts that, that this, this pandemic has had on our industry. And one cannot understate, because you see it now uh, in, in the way the first line really is responding to the coronavirus and the drain it has on their mental health and, and on their work life, right? And, and we hear these compelling stories of physicians that are separated from their families because they are treating coronavirus at the front line and they don't want to bring it home to infect their, ch- their children or their family members. We've been having this sort of crisis about work-life balance for the physician prior to this. What's so funny is that right up until corona hit, we were preoccupied with this whole conversation about burnout, physicians uh, feeling undervalued, underappreciated. Now things have completely flipped. We have people in apartment buildings cheering and playing music. You know what I'm saying? It's seven o'clock clapping and playing music, that sort of thing. It's really kind of been a, a sudden flip. And the appreciation is great. But no, to your point, no one's really talking about the second wave and the impact on both the frontline providers that you talked about, but also the impact on us as we undergo this massive shift in the next year or two. Stuff we don't even know about now. Changes in our practices. ER practices are laying off large numbers of doctors who used to staff these strip mall ERs. Our, our, our jobs are at risk. Our roles are changing. Uh, we still remain at risk for uh, bringing this infection home. We, we, we Those of us middle-aged, we're, we're we live with this ominous fear that if it hits us and we we're one of those people that are have that severe reaction, we're going to die. It's really stressful. And to your point, no one has really addressed this. If you listen to my podcast, The Exam Room, I just launched an episode with Jessie Gold. She's a psychiatrist from the Midwest, and she does a beautiful job of sort of laying out the subtle stressors. And we can talk about alcohol consumption too, if you want. I mean, it's very interesting phenomenon that I've noticed. 
you read the news and the stats, wine.com, consumption of alcohol is way up generally. You look on Twitter, um, I saw this surgeon, it was very interesting, and he had a wine glass and he had like a iced tea glass. And the iced tea glass was completely filled up with wine. He said, this is our new norm. And I'm seeing this over and over again. More and more docs are talking about alcohol as an escape for some of this stress that we're currently experiencing. I'm very concerned that there's going to be some real downstream backdraft. I'm concerned about that too. And and I think that that as a society, there are some mental health issues and, and substance abuse issues that are going to be an unfortunate side effect of this, this, you know, where 97% of the U S population right now is kind of locked at home. It's going to have a significant impact on our, on our public health. No, absolutely. And uh, that's like the second shoe to fall. And uh, we're real preoccupied with uh, epidemiology and viruses and social separation. Uh, I think when the dust settles, we're going to see this adjustment to the post-corona transition being a massive stressor uh, with implications that we don't even know of yet. I'm also wondering, too, about those students, the fellows, the residents that are in school right now, and we, we hear in New York, some of them are released early to actually be deployed to the front line. Do you think that there is going to be more of a movement of people entering into the profession of, of a physician or a provider? You mean generally like few, you mean fewer people wanting to do medicine, you mean? Yeah, fewer or fewer or more. What do you think the, the impact will be? I don't, that's like, that's a really good question, Chris. I don't know how to answer that. I think, you know, this thing about Docs graduating early has been very controversial. One side of the argument argues that they're being exploited as cheap labor. The flip side says this is a rare episode, 100-year episode of history that they can participate in and learn from. And I see both sides of it as well. There remains this feeling of moral obligation that we have as docs, and that's why all these frontline people show up and appear with compromised PPE. It's that sense of moral obligation that we feel. And I think that continues to draw people to healthcare. I mean, that's been kind of the cool thing about the COVID-19 epidemic is seeing that real sense of commitment, especially as a follow-on to this epidemic of burnout where we really thought all that was lost. So it's been kind of cool to see that resurrection of that core belief of why we're here and what we sacrifice for. You know, I've worked in healthcare, not at an, in the clinical setting, right, but in other types of settings. And I still feel that pride and that calling sort of a higher purpose to, to being participating in this industry, even though there's going to be dramatic changes afoot, you know, and in, in the next couple of years, we don't even know where those changes are going to be. And it's, it's probably going to be very difficult for us as we kind of navigate through this. Yeah, and I think the probably the biggest and most important skill set that we'll need to have as physicians or as medical students is flexibility because what's happening is medicine is changing faster than our systems can keep up. In fact, Eric Topol, when he spoke at the Baylor College of Medicine commencement about four years ago, we did this pre-visit with some of the deans of the admissions committee, and they said, what's the number one skill set needed if we're when we're accepting medical students. And he said flexibility because things are changing so fast, Chris, it is crazy. The concern I do see sometimes with medical school applicants and college students who come to me and want to talk about medicine, they have a very, very dated, even as young as they are, they have a very dated view of medicine, old fashioned view, even as young as they are. But 
everything we understand about what it means to be a physician, how we're going to work, the context of care, how we're defined, what our role is 30 years from now is going to be something we can't even imagine. I, I think what's important to understand as uh, I talk to my colleagues and these medical students is that this is a tremendous period of opportunity for us. We see the challenges, but this is also an opportunity for rebirth and regrowth and redefinition of our profession in a way that we've never had the ability to do before. As you talked about new models emerging, I think the landscape is ripe for someone who's young and technologically motivated to find a new way to do telehealth, to advance telehealth beyond just talking over a screen. And so to me, despite the challenges and the backdrop that we just talked about in the post-corona world, I think there's a real opportunity and we need to see this as still one of the most exciting times to be in medicine. And I think we have to kind of adopt that going forward. Otherwise, we're going to get crazy. That's a great way to uh, to take something that's been as potentially devastating to to our country, to our world, basically, and really find that there is a way through. I think that that kind of speaks to the, the human spirit of us, you know, looking at something that's so devastating as the coronavirus to, you know, to make this an opportunity for us to come out of this better on the other side. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. This was a really great conversation. I really appreciated it. Thank you, Chris. The emotional toll this pandemic is having on our physicians and nurses is devastating. Add to that the need to embrace new care modalities in a healthcare system that is facing significant financial burdens due to this crisis, and it's clear that providers will have to dramatically change the way they administer care to survive. While the internal motivation that inspires individuals to pursue a career as a doctor or a nurse is still ever-present, it gives me pause. Will physicians alone be forced to reinvent or redefine the role of the provider? Or will our fragmented and strained healthcare system rise to partner with our doctors to reinvent care in a post-COVID-19 world? You've been listening to The New Normal, conversations about the future of healthcare from Touchpoint Media. If you enjoyed today's program, please take a moment to rate and review the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded the show. The music from this program is I Don't Know by Grapes and is available as a royalty-free download on ccmixture.org. To find out more about Touchpoint Media, visit us online at touchpoint.health.